This is Chapter 11 of Tom Sawyer Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tom Sawyer Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 11 The Sandstorm. We went a fooling along for a day or two, and then just as the full moon was touching the ground on the other side of the desert, we see a string of little black figures moving across its big silver face. You could see them as plain as if they was painted on the moon with ink. It was another caravan. We cooled down our speed and tagged along after it, just to have company, though it weren't going our way. It was a rattler, that caravan, and a most bully sight to look at next morning, when the sun come a-streaming across the desert, and flung the long shadders of the camels on the gold sand like a thousand granddaddy long-legs is marching in procession. We never went very near it, because we knowed better now than to act like that and scare people's camels and break up their caravans. It was the gayest outfit you ever see, for rich clothes and knobby style. Some of the chiefs rode on dromedaries, the first we ever see, and very tall, and they go plunging along like they was on stilts, and they rock the man that is on them pretty violent and churn up his dinner considerable, I bet you. But they make noble good time, and a camel ain't nowheres with them for speed. The caravan camped during the middle part of the day, and then started again about the middle of the afternoon. Before long the sun began to look very curious. First it kind of turned to brass, then to copper, and after that it begun to look like a blood-red ball, and the air got hot and close, and pretty soon all the sky in the west darkened up and looked thick and foggy, but fiery and dreadful, like it looks through a piece of red glass, you know. We looked down and see a big confusion going on in the caravan, and a-rushing every which way like they was scared, and then they all flopped down flat in the sand and laid there perfectly still. Pretty soon we see something coming that stood up like an amazing wide wall, and reached from the desert up into the sky and hid the sun, and it was coming like the nation, too. Then a little faint breeze struck us, and then it come harder, and grains of sand begun to sift against our faces and sting like fire, and Tom sung out, "'It's a sandstorm! Turn your backs to it!' We done it, and in another minute it was blowing a gale, and the sand beat against us by the shovelful, and the air was so thick with it we couldn't see a thing. In five minutes the boat was level full, and we was settin' on the lockers buried up to the chin in sand, and only our heads out and could hardly breathe. Then the storm thinned, and we see that monstrous wall go a-sailing off across the desert, awful to look at, I tell you. We dug ourselves out and looked down, and where the caravan was before, there wasn't anything but just the sand ocean now, and all still and quiet. All them people and camels was smothered and dead and buried, buried under ten foot of sand, we reckoned, and Tom allowed it might be years before the wind uncovered them, and all that time their friends wouldn't ever know what become of that caravan. Tom said, "'Now we know what it was that happened to the people we got the swords and pistols from.' Yes, sir, that was just it. It was as plain as day now. They got buried in a sandstorm, and the wild animals couldn't get at them, and the wind never uncovered them again until they was dried to leather and weren't fit to eat. It seemed to me we had felt as sorry for them poor people as a person could for anybody, and as mournful, too, but we was mistaken. This last caravan's death went harder with us, a good deal harder. You see, the others was total strangers, 
and we never got to feeling acquainted with them at all, except maybe a little with the man that was watching the girl, but it was different with this last caravan. We was hovering around them a whole night and most the whole day, and had got to feeling real friendly with them and acquainted. I have found out that there ain't no sure way to find out whether you like people or hate them than to travel with them. Just so with these. We kind of liked them from the start, and traveling with them put on the finisher. The longer we traveled with them, and the more we got used to their ways, the better and better we liked them, and the gladder and gladder we was that we run across them. We had come to know some of them so well that we called them by name when we was talking about them, and soon got so familiar and sociable that we even dropped the miss and mister and just used their plain names without any handle, and it did not seem unpolite, but just the right thing. Of course, it wasn't their own names, but names we give them. There was Mr. Alexander Robinson, and Miss Adeline Robinson, and Colonel Jacob McDougall, and Miss Harriet McDougall, and Judge Jeremiah Butler, and young Bushrod Butler, and these was big chiefs mostly, that wore splendid great turbans and scimitars, and dressed like the Grand Mogul, and their families. But as soon as we come to know them good, and like them very much, it weren't Mr. nor Judge nor nothing any more, but only Ellick and Addie and Jake and Hattie and Jerry and Buck and so on. And you know, the more you join in with people and their joys and their sorrows, the more nearer and dearer they come to be to you. Now we weren't cold and indifferent the way most travelers is. We was right down friendly and sociable, and took a chance in everything that was going, and the caravan could depend on us to be on hand every time. It didn't make no difference what it was. When they camped, we camped right over them, ten or twelve hundred feet up in the air. When they et a meal, we et on, and it made it ever so much home-liker to have their company. When they had a wedding that night, and Buck and Addie got married, we got ourselves up in the very starchiest of the professor's duds for the blowout, and when they danced, we jined in and shook a foot up there. But it is sorrow and trouble that brings you the nearest, and it was a funeral that done it with us. It was next morning, just in the still dawn. We didn't know the diseased, and he weren't in our set, but that never made no difference. He belonged to the caravan, and that was enough. And there weren't no more sincere tears shed over him than the ones we dripped on him from up there, eleven hundred foot on high. Yes, parting with this caravan was much more bitterer than it was to part with them others, which was comparative strangers, and been dead so long anyway. We had knowed these in their lives, and was fond of them, too, and now to have death snatch them from right before our faces whilst we was looking, and leave us so lonesome and friendless in the middle of that big desert, it did hurt so, and we wished we mightn't ever make any more friends on that voyage if we was going to lose them again like that. We couldn't keep from talking about them, and they was all the time coming up in our memory, and looking just the way they looked when we was all alive and happy together. We could see the line marching, and the shiny spearheads a-winking in the sun. We could see the dromedaries lumbering along. We could see the wedding and the funeral. And more oftener than anything else, we could see them praying, because they don't allow nothing to prevent that. Whenever the call come, several times a day, they would stop right there, and stand up and face to the east, and lift back their heads, and spread out their arms, and begin, and four or five times they would go down on their knees, and then fall forward and touch their forehead to the ground. Well, it weren't good to go on talking about them, lovely as they was in their life, 
and dear to us in their life and death both, because it didn't do no good, and made us too downhearted. Jim allowed he was going to live as good a life as he could, so he could see them again in a better world, and Tom kept still and didn't tell him they was only Mohammedans. It weren't no use to disappoint him. He was feeling bad enough just as it was. When we woke up next morning, we was feeling a little cheerfuller, and had had a most powerful good sleep, because sand is the comfortablest bed there is, and I don't see why people that can afford it don't have it more. And it's terrible good ballast, too. I never see a balloon so steady before. Tom allowed we had twenty tons of it, and wondered what we better do with it. It was good sand, and it didn't seem good sense to throw it away. Jim says, Mars Tom, can't we tote it back home and sell it? How long it'll take? Depends on the way we go. Well, sir, she's worth a quarter of a dollar a load at home, and I reckon we's got as many as twenty loads, ain't we? How much would that be? Five dollars. By jings, Mars Tom, let's shove for home right on the spot. It's more than a dollar and a half piece, ain't it? Yes. Well, if dad ain't making money the easiest ever I struck. She just reined in. Never costs us a lick of work. Let's mosey right along, Mars Tom. But Tom was thinking and ciphering away so busy and excited he never heard him. Pretty soon he says, Five dollars, show. Look here, this sand's worth, worth, why, it's worth no end of money. How's that, Mars Tom? Go on, honey, go on. Well, the minute people knows it's genuine sand from the genuine desert of Sahara, they'll just be in a perfect state of mind to get hold of some of it to keep on the whatnot in a vial with a label on it for curiosity. All we got to do is to put it up in vials and float around all over the United States and peddle them out at ten cents apiece. We've got all of ten thousand dollars worth of sand in this boat. Me and Jim went all to pieces with joy and begun to shout whoop jamborehoo. And Tom says, And we can keep on coming back and fetching sand and coming back and fetching more sand and just keep it a going till we've carted this whole desert over there and sold it out. And there ain't ever going to be any opposition either because we'll take out a patent. My goodness, I says, we'll be as rich as creosote, won't we, Tom? Yes, creases, you mean. Why, that dervish was hunting in that little hill for the treasures of the earth, and didn't know he was walking over the real ones for a thousand miles. He was blinder than he made the driver. Mars Tom, how much is we going to be worth? Well, I don't know yet. It's got to be ciphered, and it ain't the easiest job to do, either, because it's over four million square miles of sand at ten cents a vial. Jim was awful excited. But this faded it out considerable, and he shook his head and says, "'Mars Tom, we can't ford all them vials. A king couldn't. We better not try to take the whole desert, Mars Tom. The vials gwine to bust us, show.' Tom's excitement died out, too, now, and I reckoned it was on account of the vials, but it wasn't. He sat there thinking and got bluer and bluer, and at last he says, "'Boys, it won't work. We got to give it up.' "'Why, Tom?' "'On account of the duties.' I couldn't make nothing out of that, neither could Jim. I says, What is our duty, Tom? Because if we can't get around it, why can't we just do it? People often has to. But he says, Oh, it ain't that kind of duty. The kind I mean is a tax. Whenever you strike a frontier, that's the border of a country, you know, 
you find a custom house there, and the government officers comes and rummages amongst your things and charges a big tax, which they call a duty because it's their duty to bust you if they can, and if you don't pay the duty, they'll hog your sand. They call it confiscating, but that don't deceive nobody. It's just hogging, and that's all it is. Now, if we try to carry this sand home the way we're pointed now, we got to climb fences till we get tired, just frontier after frontier, Egypt, Arabia, Hindustan, and so on, and they'll all whack on a duty, and so you see, easy enough, we can't go that road. Why, Tom, I says, we can sail right over their old frontiers. How are they going to stop us? He looked sorrowful at me and says, very grave, Huck Finn, do you think that would be honest? I hate them kind of interruptions. I never said nothing, and he went on. Well, we're shut off the other way, too. If we go back the way we've come, there's the New York Custom House, and that is worse than all of them others put together on account of the kind of cargo we've got. Why? Well, they can't raise Sahara sand in America, of course, and when they can't raise a thing there, the duty is fourteen hundred thousand percent on it if you try to fetch it in from where they do raise it. There ain't no sense in that, Tom Sawyer. Who said there was? What do you talk to me like that for, Huck Finn? You wait till I say a thing's got sense in it before you go to accusing me of saying it. All right. Consider me crying about it. And sorry. Go on. Jim says, Mars Tom, do they jam dat duty onto everything we can't raise in America, and don't make no stinction twixt anything? Yes, that's what they do. Mars Tom, ain't the blessing of the Lord the most valuable thing there is? Yes, it is. Don't the preacher stand up in the pulpit and call it down on the people? Yes. Where do it come from? From heaven. Yes, sir. You's just right. Deed you is, honey. It come from heaven, and that's a foreign country. Now then, do they put a tax on that blessing? No, they don't. Of course they don't. And so, it stand to reason that you's mistaken, Mars Tom. They wouldn't put the tax on poor truck like sand that everybody ain't bleeged to have and leave it off on the best thing they is, which nobody can't get along without. Tom Sawyer was stumped. He see Jim had got him where he couldn't budge. He tried to wiggle out by saying they had forgot to put on that tax. But they'd be sure to remember about it next session of Congress, and then they'd put it on. But that was a poor lame come off, and he knowed it. He said there weren't nothing foreign that weren't taxed but just that one, and so they couldn't be consistent without taxing it, and to be consistent was the first law of politics, so he stuck to it that they'd left it out unintentional, and we'd be certain to do their best to fix it before they got caught and laughed at. But I didn't feel no more interest in such things, as long as we couldn't get our sand through, and it made me low-spirited and Jim the same. Tom, he tried to cheer us up by saying he would think up another speculation for us that would be just as good as this one and better. But it didn't do no good. We didn't believe there was any as big as this. It was mighty hard. Such a little while ago we was so rich and could have bought a country and started a kingdom and been celebrated and happy. And now we was so poor and ornery again and had our sand left on our hands. The sand was looking so lovely before, just like gold and diamonds, and the feel of it was so soft and so silky and nice, but now I couldn't bear the sight of it. It made me sick to look at it, and I knowed I wouldn't ever feel comfortable again till we got shut of it and didn't have it there no more to remind us of what we had been and what we had got degraded down to. The others was feeling the same way about it that I was, 
I knowed it because they cheered up so the minute I says, let's throw this truck overboard. Well, it was going to be work, you know, and pretty solid work, too. So Tom, he divided it up according to fairness and strength. He said me and him would clear out a fifth apiece of the sand, and Jim three-fifths. Jim, he didn't quite like that arrangement. He says, "'Course, I's the strongest, and I's willing to do a share accordin', but by jings, you's kind of piling it on to old Jim, Mars Tom, ain't you?' "'Well, I didn't think so, Jim, but you try your hand at fixing it, and let's see.' So Jim, he reckoned it wouldn't be no more than fair if me and Tom done a tenth apiece. Tom, he turned his back to get room and be private, and then he smole a smile that spread around and covered the whole Sahara to the westward, back to the Atlantic edge of it where we come from. Then he turned round again and said it was a good enough arrangement, and we was satisfied if Jim was. Jim said he was. So then Tom measured off our two tenths in the bow and left the rest for Jim, and it surprised Jim a good deal to see how much difference there was, and what a raging lot of sand his share come to, and said he was powerful glad now that he had spoke up in time and got the first arrangement altered, for he said that even the way it was now there was more sand than enjoyment in his end of the contract, he believed. Then we laid into it. It was mighty hot work and tough so hot we had to move up into cooler weather or we couldn't have stood it me and tom took turnabout and one worked while t'other rested but there weren't nobody to spell poor old jim and he made all that part of africa damp he sweated so we couldn't work good we was so full of laugh and jim he kept frettin and wanting to know what tickled us so and we had to keep making up things to account for it and they was pretty poor inventions but they done well enough jim didn't see through them at last when we got done we was most dead but not with work but with laughing by and by jim was most dead too but it was with work then we took turns and spelled him and he was as thankful as he could be and would sit on the gunwale and swab the sweat and heave and pant and say how good we was to a poor old nigger and he wouldn't ever forget us he was always the gratefulest nigger i ever see for any little thing you done for him he was only nigger outside Inside, he was as white as you be. End of chapter 11